The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Well, we're going to have to be more enthusiastic than that after even all this uproar and everything else. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may, as one family and in one place, give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. This is an ongoing study. We broke off um, in the spring. We're going to work our way through the epistle to the Ephesians. And then if you looked at the discipleship brochure, you'll see that when we come back uh, in January, we're going to start a new series. And the series is going to be um, one that should uh, pique your interest. Perhaps uh, it is a study, at least a portion of a study of the book of Revelation. So we're going to take a look at the seven letters to the churches uh, when we come back in January. But before we get there, we're going to finish out this epistle to the Ephesians, which when we started this study uh, last year, was, we said was a mini-course in theology, a mini-course in theology that was really centered on the church. And we have worked our way up to Ephesians chapter 2, and we are at verse 10 today. So we're going to go ahead and read through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and then we'll go back and take a closer look at these verses in verse 10 in particular. So if you have your Bibles, and again, let me encourage you to bring them. Um, I can't see if you brought your Bible or not, but God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. So, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In these first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the way we were, spiritually speaking, before the intervention, the gracious intervention of God. Paul says that we were in a very dire situation. Mankind was fallen, and the consequence of that fall was catastrophic. When we think about the fall, the question we have to ask ourselves is this, just how far exactly did mankind fall? Uh, there are some, particularly back in the early part of the 20th century, who argued that if mankind fell at all, he fell upward, that humanity is on the upswing, that things are getting better, 
and better and better. Well, here we are at the dawn of the 21st century, and I think most people would probably admit that humanity uh, does not seem to be getting better at all. The world seems to be on the verge of self-destruction. So you can pretty much disabuse people of the idea that we're getting better and better. Most people recognize that there is something tragically flawed in the human condition. The only question is just how far did we fall? How bad is the situation, really? I always imagine it's sort of like falling down a mine shaft. If you want to imagine the fall of mankind in that respect, there are basically three views of this. Uh, the first view is that mankind fell, fell from grace, fell from a relationship with God, fell down the mine shaft, as it were, but didn't fall very far which is to say we are, we are not perfect individuals. Uh, we are flawed, we are perhaps sinful, if you want to use that kind of terminology, but we're really not that bad. With a little bit of work, perhaps a little bit of help from God, we can climb right back up to our exalted position. Now that's one view. The second view is that mankind fell down the shaft and fell very far indeed. And we are down there, and we are battered and bruised, but somehow we managed to land on a ledge. And we're in bad shape, and we certainly need God's help, but the good news is we're not dead. This is why you hear some hymns speak of us as being sin-sick and sorrow-worn. That, that, that's the situation some people say. We, we have fallen from an exalted position. We're in, in bad shape, but we are still alive, spiritually speaking. And then there's the third view. And the third view is the view of the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's argument is that you and I have fallen. We have fallen down the shaft indeed. But we are not merely bruised and battered. We fell the whole way to the bottom, and we are dead. That is the way Paul describes it here. He says, we are dead Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Paul says we are, in essence, spiritual zombies. We are physically alive, we are walking about, we are contracting business, we are doing all of that, but spiritually speaking, in terms of our relationship with God, as a consequence of mankind's rebellion, we are dead. And we are not merely dead. That would be bad enough. But, Paul says, we are actually, he said, under the judgment of God. Look at the way he puts it here. He says, all of us followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all carried out the desires of our body and our mind and the passions of our flesh so that we were by nature, what? Children of wrath. It's not just that we have fallen down the mine shaft and died. That would be bad enough. But as a consequence of our rebellion, we have died and we are actually, he says, under the judgment of God. We are under the wrath of God. Now, that's the human condition. And it's a pitiful condition. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what can we do about it? Well, the obvious answer, in light of what Paul has said, if you're dead, dead people can't do anything. In other words, you and I are completely incapable of rectifying our spiritual condition. You and I are completely incapable of somehow making our way back up to our exalted position 
pulling ourselves out of the hole in which we find ourselves. So if we are to be saved, if we are not to be left in this terrible situation under the judgment of God, what needs to happen? God in His mercy. There's the answer. God in His mercy has to do what? He has to come down. Down into the mine shaft, if you will. He has to come down into the mine shaft. He has to take our lifeless and limp bodies, spirits, and He has to carry us the weight of our sin the whole way to the top. And once He gets us to the top, God has to perform some sort of supernatural act. A mouth-to-mouth resuscitation by which He brings those who were dead to life again. God has to do for us spiritually what He did for Lazarus, Lazarus physically. You know the story from John's Gospel of Lazarus who had died and been in the tomb for several days. And the women, his sisters, Mary and Martha, were outside the tomb weeping and wailing, crying for their brother. But he never came. And of course he never came. Dead people can't come. They can't come out of the grave. No matter how badly you want them to come back, they cannot do it. And so God had to do what? God had to go and he had to make him alive again. And that is what God has to do for us. And that is why Paul goes on to say that it is a matter of grace. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God didn't love us because we were good people. God loved us in spite of the fact that we were not good people. That's our hope, you see. And what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ, a spiritual resurrection. And that's why he goes on to say, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, Paul couldn't be any more emphatic than he is. It is by grace, not by works, so that no one, what? May boast. So that no one may boast. You and I, if we are going to be saved, it is not by works. And it is not by works because it cannot be by works. And it cannot be by works, if you follow Paul's logic here, because we were dead. But, even if we were not dead, even if we really just had fallen down the mine shaft and were bruised and battered, we still could not save ourselves. And why is that? Because we are dealing with the standards of a holy, righteous, and perfect God. And whatever righteousness we have, it would never measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. So even if we were still spiritually alive, even if there was a spark, even if it wasn't as bad as Paul makes it out here, you and I still could not pull ourselves out of the dire situation in which we find ourselves. Because we're never going to be good enough. Now, you may ask the question, well, how good do you have to be? <laughs> I mean, how healthy do you have to be in order to recover from this situation? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. 
you've got to be better than the most religious people. Now, I know that the scribes and the Pharisees, because we're all familiar with the New Testament, get a rather bad rap. You know, those were the people that were always out there picking on Jesus. They were always plotting his downfall. And so we know that those are the villains in the New Testament. But you have to understand that in the first century context, they were righteous people. They were good people. They were upstanding people. They were the pillars of the community. If a man and his son were working in the marketplace and a Pharisee walked through, that father would point to that man and he would say to his son, if you work hard enough, you can be like him. I have a book in my library about the Pharisees, and the title of that book is Extreme Righteousness. That is exactly what the Pharisees were. They were perfect in the eyes of the law, or so they thought. Not one jot, not one tittle passed. They kept it all, and they kept it diligently. They never messed worship. They always said their prayers. They always read their Bibles. They were always out there trying to do acts of mercy and grace. And Jesus said, if you want to earn your way into heaven, you've got to be better than that. In fact, Jesus said, it's not enough to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. In that same gospel, just a few verses later, Jesus said, if you want to get into heaven, you have to be as perfect as God himself. Be ye perfect, he said, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So even if we weren't dead in our trespasses and in our sins, even if we were only sin-sick and sorrow-worn, in order to pull ourselves out of the terrible situation in which we find ourselves, we'd have to be better than the most religious, we'd have to be as good as God. Picture it this way. Picture of it in terms of a scale, the kind of scale that you see up there on the screen, or perhaps uh, if you've ever been in one of those, some of you remember the old country stores where they'd have a, a scale if you wanted to buy sugar or flour. And what would happen is that the grocer would take something like a, a pound weight, and he would put it on one side of the scale, wouldn't he? And that side would go down. And you said, I want to buy a pound of sugar. Then what would he do? He would take a scoop. And we begin to pour out the sugar on the other side of that scale until what happened? The scales balanced. Well, Jesus said you have to be as good as God. In other words, in terms of God's righteousness, our righteousness has to balance the scale with his. So just imagine it this way. God puts a pound on that scale on one side. For our argument, that's his righteousness. And all the world is then invited to come and put their righteousness on the other side. Each and every individual, every one of you, is welcome to come and put whatever righteousness, whatever good works you have, and put them down on the other side of the scale to see if you can make it balance. Now, of course, the first people that God invites are those of the reprobates. Might as well get them out of the way right away. They come and they bring what little righteousness they have. Terrible people, maybe thieves and robbers and adulterers and murderers and you name it. And they come and they, they bring their righteousness. Now you say, well, they must not have any righteousness. Yes, but there's even honor among thieves. So they must have done something right. Maybe picked up a little bird that fell out of its nest at one point and put it back in its nest. Who knows? Some sort of compassion. Helped an old lady across the street, whatever it is. <laughs> But they come and they bring their righteousness 
and they pour it down on the other side of the scale, and it only comes to about two ounces. Now, it's two ounces of righteousness, but here's the question. Does it move the scale? It doesn't move the scale, you see. And so they pass into judgment. And then the next group of people that are invited to come are the what? Well, the, the regular people. You know, people like you and me. And they come and they are invited to put their righteousness down on the other side of the scale to see if they can make it balance. Now, they are much better in the eyes of the world than those reprobates that have already passed by and put their two ounces of righteousness on the scale and didn't move it at all. And so we come. We are much better than that. Let's say we're four times as good as that. And so we pour out our eight ounces of righteousness on the scale. Now that's four times the amount of righteousness that the first group had. But here's the question. Even though it's four times the amount of the first group, does it move the scale? It doesn't move the scale, you see. And so that's when you invite the really good people. Uh, that's when you invite Billy Graham. And, and that's when you invite Mother Teresa. And that's when you invite the clergy of St. Philip's. And they come forward <laughs> and, 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 and they pour their righteousness on the scale. And they're better than us. I mean, they, we, they, we only had eight ounces, but they've got 12 ounces of righteousness. And they pour their righteousness on the other side of the scale. And my goodness, it's impressive, especially to those who only have two ounces of righteousness. My goodness, that's impressive. That's impressive to us, too. Man, I wish I could be like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. But here's the question. Even though it's 12 ounces of righteousness, does it move the scale? It doesn't move the scale, you see. And the scales have to balance. And that's our situation. So even if we weren't dead in our trespasses and in our sins, even if we were, in a sense, alive still, we still could not bring enough righteousness because none of us is perfect. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you have 15 ounces worth of righteousness, if it's not perfection, it does not balance God's scale. And God, who is righteous and holy, does have a balanced scale. And that's why Paul says it can never, never, never be by works. And that's why he says all boasting is excluded. If we are to be saved at all, it can only be by the grace, the unmerited, undeserved grace of God. Now that's why we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a 12-ounce wretch like me. See, that's our only hope. And unless you realize that, now you may think to yourself, well, I'm better than that person who has only two ounces of righteousness doesn't matter in God's eyes. It may matter in the eyes of other people, but it does not matter in God's eyes. In this respect, not to mix metaphors, but a miss is as good as a mile. 
doesn't matter in God's eyes. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. You're all familiar with the story of Martin Luther on October the 31st. We call it Halloween. We really should call it Reformation Day. On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, as you know, nailed 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, 95 complaints, rather, that he had against the medieval church, abuses of the church. And one of his biggest complaints was that he argued that the church was teaching that a person could, in fact, be saved by their works. And there he defined what we would call the classic doctrine, Protestant doctrine, of justification by grace through faith, which Martin Luther said was the doctrine of the standing church. The church stands or the church falls on that doctrine. It's the heart of the gospel. And as a consequence of that act, as you all know, a great reform, a revolution broke out in Europe. So let me ask you a question. How are you saved? By God's undeserved, unmerited favor. How many works do you contribute to the process? This is grumbling. I'm I'm, I'm not clear here. None. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nothing. The only thing you and I contribute to the process of our salvation is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. So is there any room for boasting in heaven? No. So you're tracking with me here. I'm just making sure you've got the message here. But this does raise a question then, doesn't it? If we're we're really saved by grace and not by works, and there's no boasting in heaven, so works are excluded entirely from the process of salvation, then that raises the serious question, well, is there no place for good works in the Christian life? In other words, can I simply say by grace and live like hell? And that's the question, isn't it? Is there any place for good works in the Christian life? Paul says there's no place for good works in the process of salvation. Boasting is absolutely excluded. Well, is there any place then at all for good works in the Christian life? And if so, where? Well, that's what this verse 10 here in Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. I think it's the most neglected verse, really, in the entire book. Everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, if they've been raised with any kind of Bible tradition whatsoever. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. If you're ever going to share the gospel with somebody, you've got to understand that concept. But everybody forgets verse 10, don't they? For you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God intended for us to walk in. Is there any place for good works in the Christian life? Well, Jesus certainly thought so. In Luke chapter 9, he said, If anyone would seek to be one of my followers, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. Now, there are three works involved right there. Anybody that would be one of Jesus' followers must first do to what? Deny himself or herself. Take up their cross which was an invitation to die to self, and then do what? Follow him. Now, that's work if ever there was work. If you are trying to live a holy life, you know how difficult that is to deny yourself, 
We're living in a culture in which we're told to do what? Gratify yourself. How did Burger King say? Have it your way. And that's what we want. We want to have it our way. And so to deny oneself, my goodness, we're taught to indulge oneself. Treat yourself. And Jesus said, if you're going to be one of my followers, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. That's an invitation to die to self. And to die to the passions of the flesh. And then finally, he says, follow hard after me. In Luke chapter 6, at the end of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked a very question. He said, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I do? Or you do not do what I command you? And in Matthew chapter 5, as we've already said, Jesus said, if you're going to get into heaven, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That wasn't just a prescription for how you get saved. That's a description of what the saved life looks like. So is there a place for good works in the Christian life? Jesus certainly thought so. The question is not whether there is a place for good works in the Christian life. The question is what is the proper place for good works in the Christian life. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul's formula is correct. Look at what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no man may boast. But then he goes on to say, But you've been saved from something for something. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Hold on to that expression, created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why Jesus describes good works as the fruit of a relationship with him. He said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree cannot be bear, bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Therefore, you will know them by their fruits. What is Jesus telling us there? He's telling us that good works will not save anybody, but good works are the result of salvation. Do you understand the difference there? Your good works can't save you, but if you have been saved, then your life will evidence these things. So the good works are not the means to salvation, they are the consequence, they are the result of salvation, and therefore they are the evidence of salvation. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, I'm really struggling, I'm wondering if I'm actually saved, I'm wondering if I'm really walking with the Lord, I'm wondering if I really have that relationship that if I were to be called home today, whether it be in a traffic accident or something else, I want to know that I'm going to be with the Lord, but I, I, I'm doubtful of that. Is there any certainty whatsoever? Well, one way that you can be certain is ask yourself, do you see any fruit in your life? <laughs> is there any spiritual fruit in your life? Now, when we talk about good works, we're not simply talking about those works that are pleasing to mankind. We're talking about the kind of fruit, the kind of good works that are pleasing to God. Christ-like character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kind of fruit that God is looking for. And if we are united with Christ, then we are going to begin to produce that kind of fruit. 
Jesus talks about being pruned. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. He doesn't say you have to work at it and you may bear much fruit. He said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. You see, if a branch abides in the vine and the vine is healthy, the branch can't help but bear fruit. It's not something that works at it. It's something that happens as a result of being united. And that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about being created in Christ Jesus. Listen, as you've heard me say, and as we've already said, you have been saved from something, but you've been saved for something. There are those out there who say, well, if you're saved by grace, you can go ahead and live any way you want. You can live carnally. There's an expression called the carnal Christian. I don't know if any of you were raised in a tradition where people talked about that. The carnal Christian, that's the kind of person that actually has received Christ as their Savior and Lord, but they are living in a fleshly way. They're, they're following after the world. I want you to understand there is no biblical concept. I don't care who taught you that. You have never heard, and nowhere in the Bible will you ever hear the expression, a carnal Christian. It's oxymoronic. You either follow after the Spirit or you follow after the flesh. But you cannot be in league with the Spirit and then following after the flesh. It's impossible. Now, that's not to say that Christians sometimes don't sin. How many of you still sin from time to time? I mean, every now and then. We all do. That's why Martin Luther said, we're simul ustus et peccator, at the same time justified in sinners. But the question is this, do those sins characterize your life? Do they characterize your life? Do those attitudes characterize your life? If somebody else were to say, yeah, that's really what they're like. If, you, if somebody were to describe your life, how would they describe you? I'm not asking if they would describe you always moral and upstanding. You're going to hear a great sermon from Mark Bouton today about being a first-class citizen. Oh, he's a first-class fellow. That's not the question. The question is, if somebody were to ask you, characterize that person's life, would they be able to say, well, their life was characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, that's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of being united to Christ. We have been saved from something, but we have been saved for something. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, but I can't do it. I, I, I look at my life. Let me tell you something. You can do it. Because what goes along with justification is also regeneration. Those two things go together, and they take place simultaneously almost. Justification means that you are declared righteous in God's sight. But when God declares you righteous in His sight, purely on the basis of the merits and grace and worthiness of Jesus Christ, He nevertheless does what? He makes you alive again in Christ Jesus. Isn't that the way Paul describes it? Go back again to verse 10. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, what? Created in Christ Jesus. Which is to say that when we are united with Christ, when He makes us alive again, He gives us a new birth. Isn't that what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Because unless he's born again, he cannot live a righteous life. 
This is why Peter says we are born again to a living hope. Paul in 2 Corinthians says you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. It's no longer you who do these works. It is God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that works in you to produce these things. So there is a place for good works in the Christian life. But they're not the means to salvation. They're the consequence. They're the result. They're the fruit, the evidence of that salvation. When God regenerates us, he gives us a new set of senses. You have five senses. There's a sense in which God gives you new senses. Until God made you alive again, you are not able to see your own sinfulness. I had a lady in my last parish. I've mentioned her many times before. She was a delight. When I first got there, though, she was, she was tough. And I remember her saying to me, I, I mentioned this in the Bible study on Matthew this past week. She said, before your predecessor came here, she said, I never knew I was a sinner. She said, I was at a cocktail party one time, and I was talking to somebody about the new minister at the church, and that person mentioned the fact that we're all sinners. And she said, I told them I'm no sinner. <laughs> we take umbrage at that. We, we are offended by the idea that we are sinners, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe you, but not me. See, that's what happens, isn't it? She said, now you've come here, and she said, I realize I'm a miserable sinner. See, what God does is He gives us, when we're regenerate, the ability to see ourselves for what we really are. To pull back the curtain and to see the portrait of what we really are in God's eyes, not the picture that we would want to present to the world. That's why that colic for purity at the beginning of the liturgy is so powerful. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. You can hide from a lot of other people. You can wear the mask but God sees. And when we are regenerate, God gives us the ability to begin to see ourselves for what we really are. And one of the signs that you are truly regenerate, one of the fruits of the Spirit, is the fact that you begin to see yourself for what you really are. The closer you get to Christ, the more your sin will become apparent to you. Because the closer you get to Him who is the light of the world, the more your cracks and your blemishes and your flaws will be apparent to you. So if you're struggling with that, rest assured you're on the way. He gives us new sight. Sight to see ourselves for what we really are. Sight to see Him for who He really is. Holy, righteous, gracious, and merciful. He gives us new ears. You know, there are many people out there that can hear the most powerful sermon in the world, and it makes no impression on them whatsoever. Jesus talked about that in the parable of the the sower, the four soils. He said sometimes the word of God is preached to them and what happens to it? It just glances off, makes no impression whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, one day, for reasons that are completely secret to us, they're hearing a message and the light bulb goes on. All of a the sudden, they've been listening for years, but all of a sudden they hear. Well, you see, that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in their life. He gives you new hearing. Gives you a new sense of touch. He gives you a, a whole new perspective on the world, on you, on God, 
and on what life is really all about. That's what it means to be born again. It's as though you're starting all over. It's as though a whole new world has opened up to you. You who were dead were made alive again. And that new birth goes along with that justification. Which is why Martin Luther, who said that justification by grace through faith is the doctrine of the standing church, we cannot add or take away from that great doctrine. And yet he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is never alone. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what God saved us for. Saved us from ourselves, from judgment, from death, from wrath. But he saved us for something, what? That he might put us on display. That we might show the world what it means to be a Christ one. That's what the word Christian means, by the way, a little Christ. Does the world see Christ in you? When people look at you, by the way you act, by the way you work, by the relationships that you keep, do people see, not you, not respectable society, but do people see Jesus Christ? That's the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This whole issue of justification, incidentally, is one of the primary issues between Roman Catholics and Protestants. This whole issue of the place of works in the Christian life. And uh, as much as there are many things about the Roman Catholic Church that I admire, and while I think that they have stood firm on a lot of the moral issues where we've gone a little wobbly, I must confess that I could never become a Roman Catholic for this very simple reason. This whole issue of justification, the issue of grace, faith, and the place of works in the life of the Christian. What's the difference? Well, Catholics basically argue that we are saved by grace through faith. They, they would certainly agree with that. I mean, after all, Paul says it here. But they would also argue that what God does with the faith is he produces works in our life, and it's the faith plus the works that really save us and lead to a right relationship with God. We put it a completely different way. We say that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but the works proceed from salvation. So if you were going to put it in formula form, this is the way Catholics would put it. Faith plus works equals justification. Protestants would put it this way. Faith equals justification plus works. You see the difference there? And it really has to do with the means of grace. That's the whole issue, because it's grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. Both groups would say that we are saved by grace and not by works. The question is, how does the grace come to you? In the Roman Catholic Church, the grace is infused to you. The sacraments are described as means of grace. And so that's the reason why, if you haven't been to confession... How many of you are recovering Roman Catholics out there? Anybody? How many of you, if you have not gone to confession, should you go and receive the sacrament at Mass? Why not? Because you are not in a state of grace. 
You see, this is the language that is used. So you're saved by grace, but the means of grace are the sacraments of the church. And so it's an infused grace. It is infused into you by means of the sacraments, which are what? Good works. So faith plus good works equals justification, you say. The Protestant understanding is this. You're dead. You can't go and do anything. But God makes you alive even when you were dead. He imputes his grace and his righteousness to you. He doesn't infuse it into you by any means because dead people can't do anything to get it. He gives it to you freely, makes you alive. Faith then becomes a gift, not a work. <laughs> because dead people can't have faith. God gives you the gift of faith. That's why it's called a gift. And that faith then goes on, plus the works that proceed from it for a holy life. That's the big difference between these two traditions. And while there are a great many people out there in the Roman Catholic Church, I think, who are really saved by grace through faith because they really do place their trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Nevertheless, the understanding of the vast majority of Catholics is that I got to do it. I got to show up for Mass. I've got to make my confession. I've got to do all of these things. Otherwise, I'm not in a state of grace. Well, if that's what you have to do in order to get into a state of grace, it's really not grace at all, is it? That's why Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. There is a sense in which this doctrine that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but that works proceed from that salvation, there is a sense in which this is a built-in apologetic for the Christian faith. I mean, let's be honest. Who but God could think of a system like that? This is what John Gerstner, who was a professor for many years at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, said. It's a built-in defense of the Christian faith. You have really three groups of people. You have the moralists on the one hand who say you do, 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 and if you do hard enough, you will earn your favor with God. That's the moralists. Those were the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day. And there are many people out there today who want to say, look, I'm no, I'm no sinner. I know many people who are, but that's not me. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to get my salvation the old-fashioned way. I'm going to earn it. But you know, what those people do is they rob God. They rob God of what? Of His glory. For you see, if we were to contribute even the slightest amount to our own salvation, then we couldn't say to God alone be the glory. There are other people who are what I call the grace junkies. They border on antinomianism. They basically say, oh, I'm saved by grace. Oh, God's grace is so wonderful. Oh, God is so gracious. And then they go out and they live like the rest of the world so that nobody can see any difference, any change in their life whatsoever. And they, too, rob God of his glory, don't they? Because he created us in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, to put us on display, to be little Christ. But the Christian way is this. The Christian sees his own unworthiness. He's God's amazing grace and mercy toward him or her, the person who doesn't deserve it. How does the old hymn put it? Nothing in my hand I bring. 
Simply to the cross I cling. And they realize that God is under no obligation to have mercy on them, under no obligation to save them, because even if they come with 12, 13, 14, 15 ounces worth of righteousness, it's not enough to balance the scale. And God says, I'm going to come down in the person of Jesus Christ, down into the pit. I'm going to pull you up. A burden upon me, I will pull you up and I will breathe into you new life and I will make you a new creation. And when you realize God has done that for you, even though you don't deserve it, all of a sudden you want to please Him. It's not a service you see of obligation, it is a service of perfect freedom. And as a result of God's amazing grace, we respond in love. And we do good works, but not because we're fearful that if we don't, God's going to get us, but because we know that God loves us and gave up everything for us. And when you've had that kind of an experience, all of a sudden, my goodness, you begin to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness. And you bring glory to God. Why? Because you will know them by their fruit. Who but God could think of a system like that? So how much righteousness are you contributing to the whole process of salvation? How good do you think you really are? Are you casting all your cares, all your hope, all your trust on Jesus Christ? And if you have, if you realize how bad you are and how good he is and he's had mercy on you, here's the question, are you living in response to that? Do people see in you the good works God created beforehand that you should? Let us pray that he will prune us more and more as individuals, and as a body, that we might bear much fruit for the glory of his name, for the advance of his kingdom, and for the blessing of his people. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this powerful message from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We know, Lord, that there's nothing that we can bring to the process of salvation. Help us to see our own selves in the light of eternity, not compared to other people, but compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if we find ourselves falling tragically short of that mark, we pray that we would cast ourselves on your grace and your mercy. But help us, Lord, not only see ourselves for what we really are, but help us to see you for who you really are. And as we fall in love with you day by day, we may begin to live in such a way that we bring good works the fruit of salvation, for the absolute glory of your name. This we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Thank you.